0: Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. This episode is going to focus on the upper GI bleed. Over to you.
1: Yeah, so this is um, a very common uh, disease uh, and group of people that we see on the acute take. Um, So very handily, there's been um, a paper uh, released from the University Hospital Birmingham by Xiao and Bala et al., Um, And they've actually kind of um, published a very nice, compact, sensible guideline about all the evidence that's out there um, and kind of focused on the uh, medical management of the general physician um, before endoscopy. So um, hopefully this will be found useful. We've also got an anecdote from our current sitting president, uh, Dr. Andrew Goddard, uh, Professor Andrew Goddard, I should say. Um, And I've also got a nice little anecdote um, from Professor Rockall.
0: Excellent
1: um, So as always let's start with a case yeah. Okay. Um, so we have Mr Palm who's a 40 year old uh, otherwise fit and well gentleman um, He's come in with three episodes of haematemesis um, he's, he's brought up some blood Don't really know much more about that um, But there's been no Melina mm-hmm. um, He's also quite sporty and um, that's kind of all that's been gleaned from the social history so far from A&E um and in terms of his ob so he's awake he's alert um a to e assessments okay um blood pressures about 100 over 70 heart rates 100 sats are normal rest rates normal he's afebrile so what's going through your mind
0: okay so his heart rate's a little bit fast um blood pressure systolic's on the lower side of normal um, he's had some hematemesis. he said he's had no melina He mentioned that he's sporty now I think you've told me that for a reason and I'm thinking it's because he's injured himself and he's been taking an anti-inflammatory yeah. possibly um, so I'm worried that this gentleman has had an upper jaw bleed yeah. maybe caused by esophagitis irritation from the anti-inflammatory he's been taking um, he's a little bit unstable with a heart rate of 100. Um, no molina is yet, but that doesn't mean that that's not going to happen. So I, first of all, I want to do an a to e assessment.
1: Yeah, and absolutely. And
0: stabilise him and resuscitate him.
1: Um, so yes, you're right. I kind of loaded that history with the sporty <laughs> side. So <laughs> yes, he has been taking uh, very frequently some NSAIDs, okay. uh, some ibuprofen for a sporting injury. Um, but he also... Because he plays sports for a team quite regularly, they tend to be quite sociable and they tend to go out drinking uh, alcohol quite frequently as well. Okay. Um, does this change anything in terms of your initial A to E assessment?
0: Um, not from an A to E approach. No, I would always follow the same A B C D E. Give him some fluids, two large bore cannulae, get some. Um, I get some fluids into him. Do a group and save. Do a cross match. Get some blood available um, in case we're going to need to resuscitate him. Think of his capillary refill, check his glucose, peripheral examination, always important. However, on my peripheral examination, I'm going to look for signs of liver disease.
1: Yeah.
0: So you've mentioned alcohol. Um, Again, I want to know a little bit more exactly how much he drinks, how long he's been drinking for. Is he a daily drinker? Is he a problem drinker? Or is he a binge drinker at weekends? Either way, the binge drinking could cause potentially Mallory Weiss tears, and the sort of the regular heavy drinking can also cause liver disease. Yeah. Patients with liver disease, we know, can develop portal hypertension. They can develop varices within the esophagus. And this could present with an esophageal variceal bleed. Yeah. These patients tend to present with fresh red blood, though, rather than sort of a, the hematemesis brownie sort of broken down blood. So maybe slightly different. But yeah, it's certainly be a little bit more cautious now.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so we're actually reassured by his blood tests. So his, his INR, his platelets, his liver function um, are all within normal parameters. Um, and we don't see any stigmata um, of liver disease. Um, so we're probably more erring on the side of is this said related. Okay. Um, so you've stabilised him. He's yeah. had a bit of fluid resuscitation. Um, he hasn't required any transfusions because uh, his HB's been at 12. Um where, where would you go from then? And so you're happy he's stable. Yeah. Um, does he need admitting? Does he need a scope?
0: So the nice guidance on upper GI bleeds are quite clear that anybody who has a serious upper GI bleed needs to be scoped immediately after they've been resuscitated. Anybody else who falls into, who has, has had an upper GI bleed would probably fall into the category of needs a scope within 24 hours. Now, because this patient is hemodynamically stable now, his hemoglobin's 12 INR, liver functions normal. He would probably fall into the must have an endoscopy within twenty four hours category, and therefore I would, after I'd stabilised him, contact my gastroenterological.
1: Yes, absolutely, colleagues. Um, and one thing that this paper has highlighted um, is is something that I'm sure we're all familiar with is the Blatchford and Rockall scores. Okay, yeah. um, so these are validated scoring systems uh, that are able to predict endoscopic and mm-hmm. clinical outcomes. Um, they're very useful, and I've seen this in pretty much every trust that I've worked at. They're actually used as triage tools for endoscopy. Um, you're absolutely right, though. If it's if it's, you know, very z- if it's zero or low, um, they could probably be a candidate to have an outpatient um, endoscopy. Um, however, given the history and a few little ticks on the scores, um, he probably needs one sort of ideally within 24 hours or so. Um, just out of interest, are you aware of how significant and how common upper GI bleeds are?
0: From my experience, um, they seem to, they feel common, but I wouldn't know exactly how many I see or what the actual, actual percentage, percentage rate is. Yeah, so
1: it. it's um, it's actually very common. It's one of the commonest medical emergencies in the UK, uh, with an incidence of about 134 per hundred thousand, um, which equates to one presentation every six minutes.
0: Gosh, that's. Yeah, yeah, so it's no wonder it feels like I see a lot of upper GI bleeds. Yeah, yeah,
1: and again, yeah. anecdotally I feel that every take I've done there's at least been one case without a doubt um, where yeah. you know you're referring to endoscopy. Yeah. Um there is mortality um related to this There's around nine thousand deaths annually in the UK. Um but the important thing I think uh, for our listeners to consider is that it's not necessarily just the bleed itself. It's normally the comorbidities that are associated with the patient, such as do they have ischemic heart disease, do they have existing uh, liver failure or, or any other organ damage? Um, but it is something that carries mortality. So yes, you do want to um, certainly be looking out for these people quite closely. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Um, so in terms of the history, um, we think that he's got more peptic ulcer disease probably is an NSAID induced if you remove that triggering factor mm-hmm. um we're probably a little bit happier with with his management um say if i flip this and said that or he does have established liver disease okay um is this going to be a variceal bleed yeah. is there anything else that you're doing the management um differently
0: absolutely so automatically i'm going to be more cautious and a little bit more um much more concerned actually and uh, probably more aggressive initially with my treatment if he's hemodynamically unstable i would again follow the abcde approach aggressive fluid resuscitation. i'm going to replace the blood products if he's actively bleeding um i would also check his inr and his prothrombin time if his inr is high and his prothrombin time is prolonged um Maybe he's on warfarin, maybe not, but I would think about reversing that, so maybe with vitamin K or with um, prothrombin complex concentrate, such so as octoplex or Berryplex. certainly use that um, in discussion with the haematologists. I would also think about the use of terlipressin, potent vasoconstrictor, um, and that can also be very effective in varicillble bleeds. Um, Are you aware of any reasons when we'd be more cautious of using telepressin
1: yeah so glad to raise that because that's um very pertinent so if they have any indication of arterial disease uh, myocardial ischemia or severe cardiac failure or prolonged qtc interval these are contraindications to having telepressin however you can consider somatostatin or octreotide in these groups of patients The reason we use telopressin for suspected variceal hemorrhages um, is because, as you said, it's it's a a vasopressin analogue, increases systemic vascular resistance. Um, but we don't tend to use telepressin for things like peptic ulcer bleeds or, or, or less you know, severe um, causes that we think. Would um,
0: you use tranexamic acid?
1: So actually um, the role of tranexamic acid is unclear uh, and it's not currently recommended, mm-hmm. um, but there are some ongoing trials and research um, into seeing whether it is effective. But again, I think on the shop floor, if you're thinking they've got a coagulopathy or, or, or you want to try measures to stop bleeding, um, I think, personally, I, I know I've used it in the... Yeah,
0: I know I certainly have yeah. as well.
1: But I think you've raised a really good point about coagulop- coagulopathy full stop. So yes, if there's um, severe abnormalities, you want to speak to a haematologist. Yeah. NICE have actually got some guidelines about the parameters um, of what you look out for. So if the platelets are less than 50, yeah. you definitely want to be giving them a platelet transfusion. Okay. Um, if the r is above 1.5, then you consider, as you said, you know things like Beriplex, FFP, Um, And you also want to look at fibrinogen. So if that's less than 1.5 grams per litre, again, you consider um, FFP or cryoprecipitate if it's still low despite FFP. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think particularly with those with um, liver conditions, you want to be looking at your INR uh, and your clotting uh, screen very carefully.
0: And also, you've mentioned lots of blood products. And I know in our hospital, we have the major hemorrhage protocol. And um, it's often... um, overlooked or probably not activated as much as it should be but certainly in anybody who's got a large upper GI bleed variceal bleeds can be catastrophic um, they are some of the most horrific things i've seen actually um, particularly when i was training and um, activating the major hemorrhage protocol within your hospital normally done through switchboard lets the blood bank know that this is happening and also gets porters on side so you can get them to, to run and fetch blood product so it's really really helpful
1: absolutely that's a really key point is that every trust should have a major hemorrhage protocol getting that o negative quickly um, if you're waiting for your you know your group and save and cross match to follow on after that Um, interestingly there are thresholds um, to consider Um, obviously if it's a major hemorrhage the most important thing is getting some blood product in them Um, if they are a little bit more stable though there is this uh, debate about how much do you give them and what target hb should you be aiming for um, again, this paper um, that we've been reading uh, kind of sums this up quite well. Um, Villanueva et al. Uh, demonstrated that a transfusion trigger uh, of 70 grams per liter to 90 grams per liter hemoglobin was actually associated with significantly reduced six-week mortality, rebleeding, or adverse events. And actually, this is a recommended strategy by the ESGE that a restrictive transfusion. Uh, goal to target hemoglobin between seventy and ninety after hemostasis has been achieved uh, it should be aimed for. So, in summary, you don't need to go overboard yeah. and aim for a hemoglobin of twelve if their Hb is eight. It's, you can kind of keep it at a slightly lower range. Um, you don't need to be ordering you know ten units or, or or more just to get them up. So, don't watch the Hb in that kind of stable circumstance.
0: Okay. And so, you mentioned <laughs> the ESGE. What is that? Yeah.
1: So the ESG is is the European Society of Gastrointestinal. In-
0: oh, thank you. Okay, so one thing we need to talk about as well is antibiotic usage, mm. and you flipped it on its head. You said that this guy is now could have potential variceal bleed, and the nice guidance of twenty sixteen of the management of upper GI bleeds clearly states that people with suspected or confirmed variceal acute upper GI bleeds should have antibiotic therapy at presentation, and. Um, a gastroenterologist once told me that this was because infection can sometimes trigger off variceal bleeds, but also the infection can adversely affect your renal function, can trigger off hepatorenal failure, fluid retention, and by giving antibiotics early, it reduces the risks of those developing.
1: Yeah, so, absolutely. Key and I think to it's, remember. it's important to consider, particularly those with liver failure and cirrhotic patients, that they are just generally more at risk of infections. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this has become certainly more pertinent in uh, when I've been called to review an inpatient um, of a suspected GI bleed. So, yes, they're more at risk of developing infections, um, you know, from cross-contamination from the ward, et cetera. So, yes, uh, antibiotic prophylaxis is certainly adopted as a standard procedure as well. Excellent. Um, so, we've covered uh, just a, a few sort of uh, pre-endoscopic management, the scores, um, blood products, terlopressin mm-hmm. if it's variceal hemorrhage, antibiotics, coagulopathy, et cetera, et cetera. Um as you 've quite rightly highlighted though, it can be quite a scary scenario when you 've got someone bleeding um in front of you Absolutely. um and i've I've always found historically for me transmitting that fear that I have uh of the patient in front of me to the endoscopist is sometimes a little bit difficult you know and and picking up the pertinent points about okay, what key things do I need to say? Um, to get them to agree to do a scope. Because ultimately, you know, we're keeping these patients nil by mouth, you know, we've got all their management things done. But the definitive thing is to get them an endoscope to find out what is going on. Um, So I thought I would ask our president, uh, Professor Goddard, because he is a gastroenterologist, about um, his sort of thoughts on the matter. Um, And I asked him, um, what does he think is the most important things that he would like to know uh, when he's received the call? Um, But before I get to him, just thought, as an acute medic consultant, what do you focus on?
0: When I'm on the patient or when I'm talking to the endoscopist?
1: When you're talking to the endoscopist.
0: Um, so, I want to, for me to call an endoscopist, must mean that I'm really worried about the patient. Yeah. So, normally, if I've tried resuscitation, either with fluid products or with blood products, and I haven't got any response, so the blood pressure's not increasing, they're getting more and more tachycardic. Or particularly if it's variceal, it's just that persistent variceal bleed that you can't stop and it goes everywhere and it's frightening and that's when I get worried. Yeah. So I've reached the level of my expertise. Yeah. I need help. Yeah. So yeah. it's when I've got to that stage.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, he would agree. Okay. So actually one of the most important things that he wants to know is are they hypotensive despite the fluid challenge? Because I think that really highlights that something severe and active and yes. ongoing. Yes. Um, Is happening so that's something that I think um, if you know if you're a budding med reg out there just always make sure that you keep checking their fluid challenge make sure you've got an input output chart Uh, make sure that you've got a nurse who's sort of monitoring them very closely Um, and also he um, also mentioned that what we've already discussed that do they have an underlying liver disease if there's a history or any physical signs suggestive of liver cirrhosis (laughs) or you think they've got portal hypertension this is going to be a variceal bleed um, that's another thing um, that gets him thinking about okay, they need a scope urgently. Um, I also asked him about what has he been surprised at um, at endoscopy. So obviously we've we've covered the most common causes of upper GI bleeds, namely peptic ulcer. Uh, you've mentioned gastritis, yep. esophagitis. Uh, we've ca- uh, we've covered uh, varices in quite some detail already. Also Mallory Weiss tear. I think you've mentioned all. You know if they're retching a lot, if they're vomiting, that can cause some tears. Um, there's also malignancy as well. Some slightly rarer causes, so vascular ectasia um, or angiodysplasia could also be found at endoscopy. Um, interestingly, though, he he mentioned a case where he ha- had a patient who had already had a CT scan, which reported a gallbladder cancer. Um, but actually, at endoscopy, he found that they had a deep duodenal ulcer, which had caused a perihepatic abscess. So I suppose it just highlights the point that it's highlights why endoscopy is so useful because you are actually visualising the lesion. And whilst radiology is improving and it's very useful, um, there are on the odd occasions where some things can appear um, to represent something that it's not. Um, so just some food for thought there. That's why endoscopy is useful because you can usually visualise the lesion that you're dealing
0: with. Yeah, and that's actually a byproduct that I hadn't actually um, thought about.
1: Yeah, um, we tend to go for the, the common things, but I suppose it's, again you know you can't go wrong with your examination and history and that just think that okay this doesn't sound like peptic ulcer disease yeah oh they don't have liver disease what else could it be absolutely Um, and i suppose particularly the thing about malignancy is something that we need to always be be cautious about yeah is this the first presentation of something actually much more sinister
0: yeah yeah
1: Um, So I thought I would end on uh, just another anecdote. So this is from uh, Professor Rockle. Uh, So one of my very dear friends has the fortune of working for him. Yeah. Um, And they very kindly sent me um, Professor Rockle's thesis uh, for his MD many, many years ago. Um, And I just found it really interesting to see, you know, what were the pertinent points then? Um, Are they still relevant now? Obviously, we do use the Rockle score. Um, And the reassuring thing is that nothing really has changed. (laughs) Um, So ultimately, there needs to be local guidelines and protocols for the management of acute hemorrhages. Um, Cases presenting with these kind of symptoms need endoscopy within 24 hours of admission. Yeah. Um, High-risk cases should be obviously uh, endoscoped sooner following resuscitation. Um, High-level care such as ITU, HDU needs to be informed. Uh, Patients with organ failure, Um, require sort of urgent uh, volume resuscitation blood transfusions etc 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 so despite this thesis being very old um, actually a lot of the points uh, and learning points and recommendations are endorsed by our current guidelines
0: hasn't changed has it
1: hasn't changed so it kind of you know do the simple things the common things well yes um, and you should be able to uh, effectively manage these patients who as we've said can be quite scary when they first present
0: just a few little things as well that i wanted to mention um is the use of ppi so proton pump inhibitors in gi bleeds now when i first started training everybody who had a gi bleed had 80 milligrams of intravenous semeprazole straight away however that's changed
1: yes so it's uh changed uh because there's been a lot of research into the uh the pros and the cons of it i think um from my perspective, if, you've, if you are suspecting that they do have um, peptic ulcer disease and you're not sure when they're going to get a scope, you know, are they going to be an outpatient or something? I think as a medic, it can be the go-to um, treatment. You know, I need to do something for their underlying disease. Absolutely. Um, however, the guidance and the, the evidence that's out there does kind of suggest otherwise. Um, so in 2010, there was a Cochrane meta-analysis of six randomized controlled trials trials um which showed that ppis before endoscopy actually reduce the stigmata of recent hemorrhage mm. at index, index endoscopy um without affecting the rates of rebleeding, surgery or mortality so essentially i've interpreted that as you can't really see the underlying cause yeah. because of the effects of ppi and the actual benefits of the treatment aren't really there um so actually this approach we could say masks um the targets for therapy at endoscopy. And so for this reason, NICE and BSG don't currently recommend routine PPI administration. Um, however, I think this is guidance. I think, again, you know, if you had a patient who's low risk, you know, Blatchford score, you want to send them home, you're very suspicious of Pepsicol's yes. disease. Obviously, he's going to stop his NSAIDs. I think it, it's a kind of a, a shared decision-making process about, okay, if he's going to be waiting a few weeks for an endoscopy, do we need to consider giving him a little bit of treatment? Yeah. Um, okay, but the yeah. guidance is, no, there's, there's no evidence that it, it actually benefits him at the moment.
0: Right. And what about, um, just going along the non-steroidal line, what about aspirin and clopidogrel?
1: Yeah, so again, there's been a, quite a lot of research in, into the effects of both. Um, just to summarise, I think aspirin is, uh, you know, it is practical and, yeah. and is okay to continue in in certain situations, whereas clopidogrel is probably more. There's been known to be more severe effects of 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 that type of treatment. Um, but again, I would involve other people in that decision making process. So, for instance, if you had someone who's had a stent put in that year yeah. uh, and is on regular clopidogrel, you need to speak to their cardiologist about you know, whether you consider it. But Clopidogol certainly you need to stop. um If they're having an upper GI bleed, aspirin is is less less so. Yeah,
0: so you, I know you can I carry on the aspirin if hemostasis has been achieved. Obviously, if they're actively bleeding, it feels weird to give it be giving them aspirin, which can make them bleed. But absolutely, mm-hmm. always discuss with your haematology colleagues and your cardiology yeah. colleagues. Yeah. yeah, absolutely.
1: And it, the thing is, I think after the event, um it's recommended by NICE, actually, that low-dose aspirin. Um, can be continued Um, whereas again yeah clopidogrel much very much discussed with your um, cardiologist particularly if you think it's the precipitating factor
0: okay excellent brilliant thank you for listening to the rcp medicine podcast if you want to get in touch email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon and we look forward to hearing from you goodbye